Well, good morning. It is good to be before you again this morning going through the Word of God together. i got to tell you, this has been a, uh, a fun week of preparation as we prepare to look at the first part of 1 Timothy chapter 2 here. i got to say, um, and I'll probably get in trouble for this tomorrow, but I am thankful to serve alongside a another pastor and Pastor Corey who is just as zealous and as passionate about the Word of God uh, as I am. It is always encouraging to sit with him to talk about the Word together. In fact, if, uh, if I allowed it this week, we probably would have played paper, rock, scissors over this particular passage today. Um, and I'm not quite confident in who would have won, but either way, I think both uh, would do a phenomenal job at looking at this passage. And so um, I share his excitement about the passage that we're going to be looking at today and what it means for the life of our church. In fact, if I could put a chair up here to represent a chair of affirmation, uh, I think Corey would be a good one to sit in it today and to continue to affirm uh, what's being proclaimed as we walk through the Word. So we clearly are still in our study through 1 Timothy, still looking at uh, our series that we've titled Letters uh, from the Pastor. Now again, we've already seen Paul's letter to Titus. Now we are moving further into Paul's letter here to Timothy. And I hope by this point that we are all encouraged by Paul's words and what it is that he has already written. And yet at the same time, we are now going to begin to hear from Paul what is and what should be important to the local church. So as we move into our passage today, I hope that we realize that as a church, we are called to pray for and to proclaim the gospel to all kinds of people. You see, God desires the salvation to and for all kinds of people. Now, I keep using that phrase. You're going to hear it multiple times, and I'll explain to you in a minute what it means. But before we do, I want us to notice that there are actually a lot of similarities between our uh, current culture and that of the one that Timothy was leading and the one that Paul was writing to. You see, like the church at Ephesus in Paul's day, we live in a culture that resists the idea of absolute truth. You see, people in Ephesus, and tell me if this sounds familiar to you, firmly believed that everyone should be allowed to live however they please. They also believed that you can believe in whatever it is that you want to believe as long as that particular belief does not intrude upon the beliefs of others. And so we hear this, and yet as Christians, this is obviously the exact opposite of what it is that we believe. You see, Christians are a specific community with a clear call. Our message, as given from Jesus Christ, is one that is absolute. In fact, when we read Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, we read these words, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So for believers, our message is distinctly exclusive, but our witness should not be. As we are taught in Matthew chapter 28, we are called to 
make disciples of all nations. So by Jesus' own words, no one is to be left out from hearing the gospel and hearing the message and the good news of Jesus Christ. Yet when it comes to our call, our absolute and exclusive claims of the gospel are to be made known universally. Simply put, we are not to hide nor keep the message of Jesus Christ for ourselves. You see, it's not enough to simply focus on the physical needs of the people, though it is good to help meet the physical needs of people. Rather, we must also pay careful attention to the spiritual need that exists all around us. So as we look at our passage today in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul will recognize this particular spiritual need in Ephesus. And so he will call Timothy and the believers to begin their mission by teaching the people the prayers of the local church. So again, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you now to turn again to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we will begin reading verses 1 through 7. And once you have found your place in the Word, if you can, and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Paul's words in writing to Timothy, in writing to the church at Ephesus. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we, who may, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have now to, to be able to worship you through the study of your word. Father, we pray now that you would just sort through the distractions and prepare our hearts and our minds for what it is that you have for us. God, I pray that as we study this passage that we would not only understand more about ourselves and what it is that you have called us to, but Father, I pray that we would understand more about who you are. So God, we pray that in these next few moments together, may you and you alone be glorified. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. Now, just to set the scene for you again, Paul in this passage is reminding Timothy that our hearts as believers must be aligned with the heart of God. So when we look at what Paul is saying about God, we see that God's desire is for all people to be saved. So clearly, this should be the desire for the believers as well. In fact, at this point, before we jump into our text, if the desire to see people 
to be, uh, to be saved is not our current desire, then this is the point before we get into the passage that we may want to pause and do some self-reflection or perhaps, perhaps a checkup on our hearts. You see, Paul has already commanded Timothy to guard the gospel, to celebrate the gospel, and then to fight for the gospel. And so now here in this passage, Paul begins his practical commands that he wants to see implemented within the church. And so Paul begins first by speaking about public worship. You see, in verse 1, Paul uses the phrase, first of all. Now this phrase signifies the importance of this initial exhortation. Paul answers the question of how we are to guard the gospel, how we are to celebrate it and to fight for the gospel. You see, we start by praying. You see, the church itself is on a rescue mission surrounded by people who do not know the salvation of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so judgment is coming for all of us. And at that time, on the day of judgment, there will only be two destinations. One will be heaven and eternity with God, and the other will be hell and eternal separation from God. Now knowing that, we now have to ask ourselves as believers, what are we supposed to do with the time that we are given before the day of judgment? Well, Paul answers that question in our passage by stating that we are to pray. You see, prayer is the easiest thing that we can do, and yet it is the most underappreciated and undervalued tenet or call of the believer. Here's what I mean by that. You don't have to get dressed up to pray. You can pray in your pajamas, and guess what? God still hears you. You don't have to talk to people in order to pray. You are praying to God and God alone. You don't even have to leave your own home in order to pray. And yet here's the reality for today's church in our culture. When we gather to pray, it is the lowest attended ministry within the church. And dare I say that when it comes to corporate prayer, it is the most neglected call of the church. And yet all we are doing is talking to God and listening to God. So this should not be hard for us as believers. In fact, this command was so important to Paul and the church that he actually uses four different words in our passage to describe the fact that prayer, uh, how prayer should be done and how it should continue to be done in the church. We see that we are to offer prayers of supplications and prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made. Now, Paul here is teaching us to be a people of prayer. But what's more interesting to note is that Paul calls us to pray for all people by the time we get to the end of verse 1. Now Paul's point was not that every Christian is commanded to pray for each and every individual person in the world. Rather, as believers, Paul was talking about all kinds of people. 
You see, Paul here is encouraging the people not to limit their prayers. In other words, prayer is not an elitist, nationalistic, racist, or even selective practice. Rather, when it comes to prayer, there is no category of person that we should not be praying for. And so by the time we get into verse 2 and 3, Paul now teaches the church that we are to pray for kings and for all who are in high positions. In other words, as a people, we are now being taught to pray for our leaders. Now remember that Paul is writing during the time of the reign of Nero. Now, Nero was a Roman emperor who violently persecuted Christians within the first century. So during Paul's day, there would have been very few leaders or very few rulers in the world who were even Christians to begin with. And so notice what Paul is saying by saying that you were to pray for kings and you were to pray for those who were in high positions. Paul is saying to us today that we are to pray for our pagan leaders. We are to be a people who pray for the leaders that we suffer under. And we are to pray for, yes, even the leaders that we don't agree with or that we don't approve of. In other words, when you put this in our context today, regardless of what you think about their policies or their politics, we are called to pray for the president. We are called to pray for the vice president. We are called to pray for our governor. We are called to pray for our senators and representatives. And yes, we are called to pray for our Supreme Court justices. We are to pray for our leaders within our local communities. And we are to pray for our leaders within the church. In fact, if we think about the type of prayers that Paul is speaking of, we could take it one step further and say that we are to even pray for leaders of other countries. Even the ones who lead countries that are our enemies. Now, don't miss the point of what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that we should pray for all people for the sake of praying for all people because some people will then take this and misconstrue it and say, okay, well, if I'm called to pray for this politician that I don't agree with or I'm called to pray for this world leader that I don't agree with or dare I say I'm called to pray for this pastor that I don't agree with, then if I'm going to pray for him, I'm going to pray that God would simply blow them from oblivion. That's not the type of prayer that Paul is talking about. Rather, the type of prayer that Paul is speaking of is a prayer that we begin praying for God to move in their hearts so that they will ultimately lead in a way that glorifies God. And so we have to ask ourselves at this point, are we praying for our leaders? Or are we simply reading social media and watching the news, getting frustrated and then putting our leaders on blast when it comes to our own social media accounts. You see, only one of these things honors God, and yet the other one goes against the command to pray. So let's just stop and think for a moment. 
Stop and think about our words that we use to one another. Stop and think about what it is that we're posting or what what articles that we post to make a point. Does it honor God by showing that as believers we are praying for leaders? Or does it go against his very command to pray? Now Paul at this point answers the question as to why we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Notice if you continue to follow here in verses 2 and 3, he says, So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So here is our goal for praying. We are praying for peace in the midst of persecution. We are to be people who pray for our leaders to promote peace, which ultimately allows the church to flourish. You see, when authority can provide an umbrella of peace, then the church can thrive and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ freely. Now let me add a footnote here. This does not mean that the gospel can't spread in the midst of persecution. It can and it will for the glory of God. But pay attention about how much, how freeing it is and how much faster the gospel can spread during times of peace. In fact, there was a period um, during Paul's writing known as the Pax Romana or better known as the Roman Peace. Now, during this time, roads were built as trade routes were being established. Literally, the Roman Empire was paving the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread across their empire. Now, again, we recognize that the gospel can still spread amidst persecution. However, in a context of peace, Christians and churches can freely live out the call of Jesus Christ for all to see. Think about it within our own country. We have the freedom and the privilege of living out the gospel. We have the freedom and the privilege to meet in a building this size for the purpose of worship. We have the freedom and the privilege to invite neighbors to join us without fear of death. In fact, we have the freedom and the privilege to open churches anywhere. But yet, let's pay careful attention. Because even if you turn on the news today, you will begin to see where believers across the United States are starting to be told when and where they can worship. It makes us nervous. We're beginning to see freedom and privilege crumble. But let's not forget that God is still sovereign because as we think about our freedoms that we have today, let us realize that with that freedom, we need to remember to pray for our brothers and pray for our sisters all over the world who do not share this same freedom. 
while we are gathered here today under the umbrella of peace by the glory of God, we can gather in a large building that when people come in or drive by, they recognize it is a church. Yet today, all over the world, there are believers just like us who are not gathering in buildings. Rather, they are gathering in basements for the glory of God. And so we should pray for them. We should pray for their leaders. We should pray for these believers to have a bold faith, even though that faith could lead to their death in their country. You see, when we pray for our leaders, not only do we pray for the advancement of the gospel, not only are we praying for opportunities of peace in order to advance the gospel, not only are we praying for their salvation, but for us ourselves as we are praying for our leaders, it helps to keep hostility from taking root within us, and it even prepares us to live in godliness should persecution ever come our way. So you see, prayer, the prayer that Paul is speaking of here is not just for leaders, but it's also for our neighbors as well. We need to be praying for peace for them as well. Praying for salvation for them as well. We need to be praying for them so that they would be counted in the all kinds of people who come to faith. Now again, we move from there into verses 3 through 6. And what we begin to see here in these passages is the driving force as to why we should pray this way. So what we have in the following passages can be described as motivation behind our praying for the world. Which ultimately should match God's passion or God's desire for the world. This is why in verse 3, God calls it good and pleasing in his sight when people gather for the purpose of prayer for global missions. So now let's look particularly at three motivations to pray. The first one being this, we pray because God desires salvation for all people, according to verse 4. When we pray for all kinds of people to be saved, our heart begins to come in line with the heart of God himself. You see, God desires for the salvation of all peoples. But notice this. This does not mean that all people will be saved. That notion is actually called universalism, which believes that God always gets what he desires, then all will be saved. Well, obviously, that is not what Scripture teaches us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we read that we are only saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 36, we read that only those who trust in his salvation will experience eternal life. Now, upon hearing this, we can also recognize that this particular passage does not mean that God's will has been thwarted. Some scholars would argue at this point, well, if we think about it, if God desires all people to be saved and not all people are saved, then God is clearly not in control of everything. Therefore, God ceases to be God. Well, we know that that's not true. 
Scripture is clear that God is sovereign over all things. In fact, I would invite you to consider Job 42, verse 2, when Job says, Of God, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours, speaking to God, can ever be thwarted. You see, this is the point where we need to realize that God has both a decreed will, which involves what he ordains to take place in the world, and a declared will, or a revealed will, which is what he commands and makes known in his word. Now let me give you two examples of what I'm talking about between God's decreed will and his declared will. Let's say that I lie. Now, is my lie in the will of God? Obviously not in the sense of God's declared will. He clearly teaches us in Leviticus 19 and Colossians chapter 3 that we are not to lie. So now I am uh, now disobeying God's will. Yet at the same time, my lie does not catch God off guard because of his decreed will. In other words, God saw it and he knew it because even in the worst of things in our world, these things are still under the sovereignty of God. Now I know that putting together God's sovereignty and, his, and our human responsibility is not an easy thing to understand. So let me give you another example. God teaches us, according to his word, that we are not to murder We see this in Exodus chapter 20 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is God's declared will. Yet, it was God who was sovereign over the murder of his son on the cross. We know this according to the prophecies of Isaiah 53, and we see it again in Acts chapter 2. God knew and ordained that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was going to happen. That is the decreed will of God. And so according to Daniel chapter 4 verse 35, God's decreed will cannot nor ever will be stopped. So for us today, We know that God loves all people. We know that his desire is for all to be saved. Will all be saved? The answer is no. There are still some who will walk away from God, never even knowing him. But this should not stop us from praying for what it is that God desires. We should pray for all kinds to come to salvation knowing that God loves them and he desires for their salvation. Now, some of my brothers have taken this a step too far, in my opinion. They have gone into the camp of, well, since we now know God's decreed will, since we know his declared or desired will, that means we have zero responsibility in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us. And we try to make the argument of God's elect. If God already knows, then we are not responsible. Well, I want to tell you today that that is not true as well. In fact, I would make the same argument that I heard a pastor brother of mine make as well. I have yet to meet someone who was not the elect of God. 
I just work from the assumption that when I am sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, I work from the assumption that what's, who stands before me is a wretched sinner in need of a savior and they will be one of God's elect. I don't know because I don't stand in judgment with them. Only God does that. My responsibility is to pray for them and to teach them the good news of Jesus Christ. We move from there and we see our second motivation to pray, which is this. We pray because God deserves all honor. Now, if you look at verse 5 here, it tells us, for there is one God. In other words, Paul is telling us that God deserves the praise of all people because he is the one and only God. So we live and we work on life-saving mission around the world because we know that there is one God. There are not multiple ways up the same mountain that lead to God. There is but one God, and we are saved by him through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So God alone deserves our praise. And if God deserves the honor and the praise of the people, then worship should fuel the world praying. In other words, we gather as a body. We gather as separate individuals coming together for the purpose of worship. And when we do so, we do so to declare that there is one God. So when we pray, we pray for all kinds of people to come to know him so that we might corporately worship him together. We long for God to get the glory that he is due and not ourselves. This then moves to our third motivation to pray. You see, we pray because Jesus Christ died for all people. Now again, we look back at verses 5 and 6 here, and not only do we see that we serve and worship one God, but then we see Paul go on to say, but we now have one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now the word ransom is a word here that we need to pay attention to. You see, ransom means that a price has been paid for the rescue and release of a particular prisoner. So here is the gospel, simply put, again, by Paul. He says that God, completely holy in all his ways, completely just in all his judgments, stands over against sinners who deserve the penalty for their sin, and they deserve all of God's judgments. And so we, as wretched sinners before our Lord, we need a mediator to pay our ransom. Thus enter Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. You see, according to Paul, Jesus is the perfect mediator because he alone is qualified to represent both God and mankind. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, we learn that Jesus is fully divine and therefore fully God. And yet at the same time, when we flip over to Hebrews chapter 4, we see that Jesus identifies with man because he is like us in every way, yet he is without sin. 
In other words, Jesus becomes the qualified bridge that brings together God and man. You see, Jesus would become our ransom. Jesus would take on the penalty of sin that we could not pay. And so in Christ, God took on the full payment of sin upon himself and rescued us from sin and death. And it's at that moment that Christ now becomes our mediator. But here's the good news in Paul's words to Timothy. Not only did Christ become our mediator, but now Jesus lives as our mediator. You see, at this moment, right now at the, at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus Christ is interceding for us. He is standing before God on our behalf. Jesus is the constant and continual means by which we are able to approach the throne of worship. So as we pray for others to come to faith, let us remember to praise God for what Christ has done and continues to do on our behalf. Man, what a joy it is for us as believers to know in this moment that Christ stands on our behalf. This is why we are even able to sing the doxology when we sing the words, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You see, we have the blessing of Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever. That blessing began at the cross, and it continues for us today. Now, it's at this point we get into verse 7. And here Paul says to Timothy, For this reason I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, let's notice the, the parenthetical statement we have here of the I am telling the truth. I am not lying. You see, Paul at this point is separating himself and his message from that of the false teachers who are now claiming that Paul is a liar and should not be trusted. So here we begin to see, once you move past that passage, our implications to our prayers. You see, Paul again is speaking specifically both of his unique role and his call, and yet at the same time, he's showing Timothy how this passage not only applies to Timothy, but it applies to all the faithful believers of the local church. You see, as we pray for all people, we should desire to teach the gospel to all people. Now follow with me for a moment 1 Timothy chapter 2. If God desires to share salvation to all, according to verse 4, and he is worthy of praise, according to verse 5, and it was Jesus Christ who died for sinners' rescue, according to verse 6, then when we get to verse 7, we, like Paul commands, should be willing to share this gospel with everyone. Now, our text tells us and gives us the word preacher here. So a lot of people have looked at this passage and said, well, obviously, this is for the pastors. Thank God I don't have to do it. 
Better yet, I'll just bring my friends to the church and I'll hope for the best. I'll pray that the pastor and the associate pastors just preach like there's no tomorrow and everyone comes to salvation in Christ. But I think a different word can be used here in the Greek. You see, we also see the word herald. Now, I don't know of anybody who's using the word herald much today. And a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and tell you in our staff meetings, when I'm sitting there with Corey and Brianna and Elaine and Charlotte and whoever else is in our meeting, we're not looking around going, who is going to stand before our church and herald this announcement? Who's going to declare it? None of us say that. None of us are looking around going, we have an important message to give to the church. How are we going to deliver it? I know. Let's go find the guy named Harold so he can herald the message. That makes sense. Harold, I see you, brother. I'm looking at you. Thanks for waving. Rather, when we look at ancient times, the word herald itself referred to someone who would be making an important announcement. So as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers in the good news of Jesus, the picture that we actually have here in verse 7 is that we are to herald the gospel. In other words, we are the ones that have a special and important announcement to make. And so as believers, let's announce to the people who are dying in their sin that there is a Savior. Let's tell them that there is now no fear in death because we have Jesus Christ, our mediator and our king. He is the one who has conquered sin. He is the one who conquered death. And so now it is our responsibility to proclaim to them the eternal life that can be found in knowing Jesus as Lord. You see, as we share the gospel And as people respond, like we see in Paul's words, we now have the responsibility to teach them everything that God has commanded. In fact, we see this in Matthew chapter 28. It is simply not enough to lead people to Jesus Christ. We now have the responsibility to disciple them and to make known the truth about God's word. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing when it comes to proclaiming God's truth? Are we teaching God's commands? Are we, do we have someone in our life that we are discipling? Better yet, are we ourselves being discipled? To whom are we teaching? Now, I know and recognize that Paul talks a lot about prayer here. And we see from Paul that prayer should naturally lead us to proclamation of the gospel. And so if you're here and you're wondering where all this prayer, and and I'm I'm, going to do my best to bring back the word heralding. If you you are wondering where praying and, and all this heralding now leads, then know this about God's word. You see, God's word leaves no doubt as to the outcome of our mission. 
You see, in Revelation chapter 5, we begin to see a glimpse of where this mission is heading. In other words, everything that we are praying, everything that we are doing, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, leads us to the outcome that is seen in Revelation chapter 5. Because there we see the prayers of the saints as they praise God for what he has done in Christ. In other words, they are praising God and declaring that God alone is worthy. So what does that mean for us today as we study 1 Timothy chapter 2? It means that our mission, the same mission that Paul gives to Timothy to give to the church at Ephesus, our mission will prevail. Our mediator will be praised. And in the end, as we see in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus wins. As every individual or individuals from every tribe and language and people and nation will be ransomed. In other words, they will gather for the purpose of praising his name and confessing that he is Lord. So when it comes to praying for our nation, when it comes to praying for our leaders, when it comes to praying for peace, when it comes to praying for our neighbors who may not know Jesus Christ as Lord, we can be confident that this prayer will lead to proclamation which will ultimately lead to the providential end of God being glorified. In other words, there is victory in the message that we proclaim today. You see, Jesus is worthy of praise. And not just our praise. Jesus is worthy of all praise from all the nations. So as believers in Christ... Let us take this gospel, let us take this good news to our neighbors. Let us take this good news to our coworkers. Let us take this good news to our classmates and our friends. And yes, let us take this good news to the ends of the earth. And my prayer for us is that it would all begin with the prayers of the local church. So let's begin praying together for God to be glorified and for his mission to continue to spread like wildfire to the ends of the earth. He will prevail. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now. And Father, we want to praise you. Because Lord, we recognize that at the end of the days, a day that is unknown to us, Father, we know as believers in you, as those who hope in you, Father, we know and recognize that you will prevail. You alone will be victorious. And so, God, we pray 
that as believers in Christ, that we would make known who you are. That, Father, like within our own lives, we would see others just the way we were. We were wretched sinners in need of a Savior. We were at once completely separated from you. And yet, by your providential plan, by your grace and your mercy, you revealed yourself to us. And because of that, we now have victory in who you are. So, Father, help us to be heralds of that message. You have given us all an important announcement to make, and that message is not our own. It is the message of Jesus Christ our King of kings and our Lord of lords. So, Father, fill us with the boldness to proclaim your truth. Father, give us grace and mercy as we seek to do your will. Father, I pray that as a people, as we prepare to be sent out. Father, may we first start by being a people of prayer. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. Not only our political leaders, we pray for our local leaders. We pray for our sister churches in this area and their pastors. God, give them the boldness to proclaim your truth from the pulpit and as they teach. Father, we pray for our political leaders now that they would lead us to a season of unity and peace, that we would continue to see the advancement of the gospel. But Father, more importantly than all that, we pray we pray for those leaders who do not know you as Lord. Father, we pray that in a way that only you can do, pierce their hearts so that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior and their political wills would then align with your biblical will. Father, we pray for the generations to come not only our generation here as grandparents and generations of parents, but Father, we pray for our children and the future generations. God, begin to instill in them a firm foundation that rests solely upon you and your word. God, help us to continue to be people of the book. Help us to be a people of prayer. And Father, we pray that as we move from this place, continue to fill us with the devotion to worship you corporately and individually, but at the same time, give us the boldness to make you known. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for delighting in us. Thank you for calling us and drawing us to you, something that we cannot nor could not ever do on our own. And so God, we pray that we would live out your mission, that we would live out your call, knowing that at the end of the days, you and you alone 
will be victorious. Father, we thank you for the victory that can be found in you. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.